kids can find that through the door over here by the piano. And when the rest of you open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 11, which is on page 634, Proverbs chapter 11, page 634 in the Pew Bible. And just a reminder, about a month away from our missions conference, uh, every year we uh, turn our attention as a congregation uh, to the focus on the task of bringing the good news of Jesus like Philip uh, did to the, to the nations. And so that's about a month away, so you're going to be seeing more flyers for that. Um, you'll probably be getting something in the mail telling you about the conference. Uh, there's usually a missions banquet where we all get together and eat, because that is our spiritual calling as Baptists. To, uh, to dine together, so we're going to eat. There's a, a big missions banquet. It's a great time. So anyway, just be, keep that uh, on, on your radar screen. That's going to be coming up in about a month. You're going to be getting mailings about that. So the missions conference is coming, and we're looking forward to that. Uh, today we're in Proverbs chapter 11, uh, and we're reading verse 2, sort of our focus verse. It says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Once upon a time, there were two ducks and a frog, and they lived in a farm pond together. And the ducks and the frog were very good friends. Uh, They hung out together. But one summer, there was a drought. And as the drought persisted, the pond shrank, and as the pond got smaller and smaller, the ducks and the frog realized that... uh, they're going to have to find a new pond because there was enough water, which was no problem for the ducks because they could fly to a pond, but the frog would be stranded and would not be able to make the journey in the heat of the summer. And so uh, finally, these three friends got together and they talked about it. They said, what are we going to do? And they, the three of them devised together a plan. And the plan was they're going to find a stick and the, frogs were going to car- the ducks were going to carry it in their bills and flap their wings and the frog would shoot out his tongue and stick it to the stick and kind of, you know, like this, be carried through the air by the birds with a stick. I mean, this is the best plan they can come up with. So they, so they tried it. They got a stick and they grabbed it in their bill and the frog uh, stuck his tongue to the stick and the birds started flapping and sure enough, it worked. They, they lifted off and the frog was being carried along and, and they went up in the air and they started leaving the farm. And it, was, it was really amazing. And the, the farmer looked up and he saw this sight. And he took off his hat in amazement and he said, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So he shouted up to them. He said, whose idea was this? And the frog shouted back. He said, it was my idea. And so the frog fell to his death. The topic this morning is pride. It's going to be a great sermon, I'm telling you. Pride and its antithetical virtue, humility. We see it here in uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. And so we've been looking at the characteristics of a godly person in Proverbs. Uh, the Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we fear God and reverence Him, that should lead to wisdom. And wisdom has certain characteristics. Uh, wisdom has certain uh, features to it. You know a wise person by certain uh, marks in their person. Uh, we looked at kindness. We looked at integrity. Uh, last week, Seth was preaching on the fact that a, a wise person is not, uh, they don't stop at the surface, they're not superficial, but they look deeper. Well, today we want to look at the virtue of humility, that a wise person is humble, and also the, the vice that goes along with it and contrasts it, which is pride. 
Uh, or look over, uh, for instance, at Proverbs chapter 18. Just jump around to some of these Proverbs. There's a lot of Proverbs on wisdom, and on uh, pride and humility. This is a major theme. Look at Proverbs uh, chapter 18, verse 12. It says, Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. <clears throat> so we have pride and humility contrasted. So what I want to do this morning, very simple, is just I, I want to look at pride and then we'll look about, at humility. So we'll just take those two in turn as they're presented to us in the text. So let's start with pride. Um, what is pride? And I think maybe a good definition of pride is, I mean, we all know what it is, but if you had to define it, I'd probably call it self-exaltation. Because the Bible typically describes greatness and lowliness in vertical kinds of terms. The primary metaphor we find in Scripture is that things that are great are high and they're up and they're above, and things that are weak or lowly are, are down low. They're, they're small. So uh, in ancient times, if you went in to see a king he would be seated on a throne and the throne would be up on a raised dais. And so the king would be up and you would be expected in the presence of the king to get on your hands and knees and your face and bow down before the king. Uh, ancient peoples in the middle, uh, ancient Near East, uh, even in Greek, they, they believed that the gods resided where? On tops of mountains. You know, this Mount Olympus. Uh, Jerusalem was, all, you always go up to Jerusalem because God was up on the mountain. Um, when Isaiah had his vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Uh, and, and this is easy for us to understand because in our culture, um, we use the same kind of vertical imagery to talk about greatness or lowliness. We use the same kind of metaphor. Uh, we talk about climbing up the corporate ladder. I mean, no one says, I'm going to slide down the slide and become the CEO someday. We just don't, we don't talk that way. Uh, you know, a song goes to the top of the charts. A person is at the top of their game. Uh, a celebrity is a star. You know, they're so high and they're so bright that everyone can see them, but no one could ever reach those celebrities up there. They live in a different uh, stratosphere than we do completely, way up in the heavens. And, and conversely, when someone is uh, small or of no account, we call them lowly. I mean, even built into that word is that vertical imagery of being low and and down low. So pride in the Bible, like here in chapter 18, verse 12, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud. So before we fall down, we're proud. Pride then is self-elevation. Pride then is looking at some features of ourself and presuming that it grants us a kind of superiority or uh, uppiness over others. And it may be our finances, could be our intelligence or our education and training. It might be certain personality traits we have. It might be our athletic abilities. You know, whatever. I mean, the list can go on and on of the things that make us proud. Uh, and pride has, it, it works itself out in our lives in really kind of unsavory sort of ways. It's been said that pride is the only disease that makes everybody sick except the person who has it. <laughs> Uh, and that's what we see in Proverbs. Uh, for instance, let's just kind of flip around and look at pride in Proverbs a little more. Look at chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. <clears throat> Proverbs 13:10 says, Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. So one of the off uh, uh, shoots of of pride is argumentativeness and quarrels. You know, people who are arrogant are always getting in fights. 
They're always at odds with people. They're always having falling outs. Why? Well, because it's their way or the highway. <laughs> you know, if, if you know best and, and you're the one who's, who's the wise one and you can't ever be taught, well, yeah, you're going to be really frustrated because not everyone's going to do it your way. And so pride uh, just kind of goes along hand in hand with quarreling and fighting. Or look at uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 24. Is another great text. Proverbs 21:24. Another little snip, uh, snapshot of the the person affected with hubris. It says, "The proud and arrogant man, mocker is his name. He behaves with overweening pride." Uh, when we're affected with this kind of superbia, we, uh, we mock other people. You know, people who are always criticizing everyone and pointing out all the flaws and everyone else and everything they do that's not right. And in their, their mouth is always full of criticisms. You know, the assumption there is, I know best. And I'm at sort of a position of superiority to accurately look at all of the, uh, the peons and the serfs out there. And I, from my castle, can tell them, you know, this one's doing that wrong and this one's a problem over here. And so it fills your mouth with kind of a mocking, sarcastic cynicism toward everything. Uh, or just one more, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12. It says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Which is a pretty strong statement because, you know, the bottom of the barrel in Proverbs is the fool. But apparently there's a rung lower than a fool, and that's the arrogant fool. It's the person who, they're, they're wise in their own eyes. You can't teach them. You can't tell them anything. They don't listen. They just think what they think, and they do what they do. And they can never learn from anyone else. They can never be corrected. They have all the answers. You know, you've met people who they got all the answers. And no matter what, they're not going to listen to you. You know, they have a big transmitter, but they have a very small receiver. And they just transmit. And that's what the Proverbs is talking about. That's a sign of pride. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking one of two thoughts. One thought you may be thinking is, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this sermon. Because she really needs it. Or you're thinking, I'm so glad so-and-so is sitting right here to hear this sermon because he really needs it. But you know, this sermon is for you. And this sermon's for me. Uh, and the fact that we think it's for someone else shows that we really need this sermon. <laughs> so pride... Uh, uh, Pride lifts us up, it exalts us, and, and we all have it in some form or another. You know, if we're going to be really honest, if we're truly to look at ourselves and have a moment of true uh, integrity and say, am I really prideful? I think we'll see what we are. You know, we're all prideful about something. There's all something about ourselves that, even if it's, it's so subtle, we don't even recognize it, but it, it just makes us think that we're better than others. Maybe it is wealth. I mean, that's a, kind of a theme in Proverbs. That's one of the pitfalls of wealth. Wealth isn't evil, but there's temptations that go along with it, and one of them is pride. Because, you know, it just happens. If you, if you have resources and you've been successful in your business, it's just natural to kind of think, well, I must be doing something right, and other people must be doing something wrong. Because if they were doing something right, they would be doing well like I am, but they're not. So I wonder what it is about me. It's got to be something. <laughs> Let me think about it, you know. <laughs> you can be proud about not having wealth. You know? Like, I'm not like those rich people that had everything handed to them. I've worked hard. I got my feet on the ground. I know the price of a gallon of milk. You know, I, I, I done it myself. I'm a self-made man. And, 
You know, I, I work with my own hands. I'm not, you know, mixed up like those rich people. I'm, I'm a salt of the earth kind of person. It's, we can turn anything into pride. We turn our education into pride, our intelligence, how well read we are. I, I really think that's, that's one of the, if you kind of generalize, one of the cultural forms of pride that we have to struggle against as New Englanders. Because there's a kind of sense that, like, we're all smart because there's a lot of colleges around here. And sort of osmotically, it makes us all smarter than people from Mississippi, you know? Like, we must be smart because look at all the colleges and, and you know, hospitals. I'm just smarter. And I think that there's sort of a, that there is kind of an intellectual hubris that's part, I, I think, of the New England makeup that we have to fight against. We can become uh, proud of our race, or which is what racism is. It's simply pride in one's race, uh, an excessive uh, superiority that comes from being white or black or whatever. Uh, uh, pride can manifest itself um, in pride about uh, our, our family lineage, our job titles. Religion is a great source of pride. We all have all heard the stereotype of the judgmental Christian because there's a lot of truth in it. You, know, you start getting serious about your faith and you start getting serious about the Bible and about obeying God and you know it can be intoxicating and suddenly we start looking down on all those people who do all those bad things that we don't do and it's easy to become self-righteous it's just something we all struggle with the Pharisee is always lurking in the background of a Christian's life and so no matter what it is I think pretty much you could throw anything out there in my twisted heart could find some way to turn it into something to boast about and to be cocky about and to feel lifted up over others about it. It's just, it's something that sinful human beings are able to do. And so what's your, what, what's your thing or things? What, what is it that you kind of find yourself, well, at least I'm not like that, at least I'm this. And we find that we put our confidence in those things, whatever they may be. The problem, of course, is, going back to Proverbs, uh, going back to Proverbs 18:12, which was where we were a little bit earlier, it says, "Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud." So the problem is, if you exalt self, if you lift yourself up, it's just a matter of time before, like the frog, we open our big mouth and we come crashing down to the earth. Uh, if, if we walk around with our nose in the air all the time, we're never going to see the edge of the stage, and eventually, the time will come when we fall. Uh, when I was reading, uh, uh, well, there's another verse. Look over at chapter 16. It's a more famous verse on pride leading to destruction. It says in Proverbs 16:18, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It reminded me of uh, Lindsay Jacob Ellis. Does anyone remember her? 2006 Olympics. Snowboard, cross, gold medal round. She was the favored to win. She's in the lead by three seconds. I mean, she just totally smoked the course and is beating the nearest person next to her. And she's coming down. It's like, it's, it's like a jump and then a little ramp in the finish line, like all right there. And she goes off the jump and she's in the lead. And she's like, well, you know, maybe a little photo op here. She grabs a little backside, you know, kind of like, check me out, like flash, flash. And then as she brings it down, she catches an edge and crashes. And the person behind her whoop, goes past and gets gold, and she settles for silver. It was just one of those moments, and, and you know, everyone's like, oh my goodness, just crossed the finish line. It's such a great picture of how pride works. We, we start to take pride uh, in become arrogant about whatever it is, and eventually that's where we're going to crash and fall on our faces. And it's not just that it's kind of a law of nature, although I think it, it sort of is built into the way reality works, but, but it's more than just kind of a karmic 
kind of thing that happens. Ultimately, pride leads to a downfall, according to Proverbs, because God judges the prideful. Ultimately, that it's, it's not just something that kind of happens uh, mechanistically, but it's because God responds to pride by bringing those who are self-elevated, like me, down. He brings us down. Uh, so, for instance, look, we're in Proverbs 16. Look uh, at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Notice that, that the downfall of the proud really comes as a direct act of God Himself. It says in Proverbs 16:5. this is a heavy verse. I had to really sit with this one. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. God detests pride. Uh, the, the word there for detest is, is actually a noun. In, in Hebrew, it's an, an abomination to Yahweh, to the Lord, is every proud of heart. So it's that, that word that we don't really use in our PC, kind of you're okay, I'm okay culture, abomination. <laughs> we don't talk about things as an abomination. But to God, pride isn't just bad, it's not just annoying, it's not just irritating. But God responds to pride with this, this, this visceral hatred. He, he just spews it out. He's like, oh, pride. It, it's so awful and vile to him that he's even going to respond with judgment against every proud heart. I mean, that's pretty comprehensive. God detests all the proud of heart, which is problematic for us, isn't it? That's his response to pride. And why is that? Why does God hate uh, pride so much? Why does he respond so negatively and so dramatically uh, to hubris in our hearts? And I think the reason is, again, going back to what we talked about in the beginning, the pride is fundamentally a vertical issue. Yeah, pride is irritating when you're around an arrogant person because they affect people horizontally. But remember that at its core, pride is fundamentally about how we relate to God. And so what a pride person, a proudful person is doing, uh, e- even though they, they don't realize it, is they're, they're kind of putting themselves in the place of God. It's sort of a form of self-deification. It's like, I trust in myself. I trust in my wealth or my intelligence or my athletic ability or my looks or my connections or whatever it is. And so rather than trusting in God, who's my creator and maker, I make for myself a little universe in which I am superior. And so it really is a kind of self-deification. It's a kind of grasping at what God alone should have. Which is why I think many theologians down through the centuries, not all, but many, have identified pride as the root of sin. So, you, you know, theologians, they sit around and they think about, like, what really is sin? How do we define it? And many of them come to the conclusion that at the heart of sin is pride. Uh, that's what St. Augustine uh, came to the conclusion in his uh, City of God. In fact, let me just read a little passage to you from the City of God. He said, Our first parents fell into open disobedience, as Adam and Eve, they, they took from the fruit of the tree they weren't supposed to eat of, because already they were secretly corrupted. So before they took of the fruit and broke God's law, they had already broken a law. And what was it? He says, For the evil act had never been done had not an evil will preceded it. And what is the origin of our evil will but, and Augustine says, pride. For pride is the beginning of sin. Uh, pride, Pride is the start of it all. Because fundamentally, pride is an assault on the glory of God. Pride is saying, you know what, God? Like, I think I deserve a little credit here. <laughs> right? and, and it's an attack on that which is most glorious and most wonderful. So if on a Sunday, after I finish a sermon, 
This is totally hypothetical. Uh, someone uh, comes to me and says, you know, oh, that was a great sermon. I really appreciated that. Oh, it really spoke to me. It was so great. Whatever. And I get in my car, and again, hypothetically, I start thinking, like, wow. Huh. That was like two people said it was a good sermon. Yeah, that, maybe it was. Maybe I'm becoming a good preacher. Maybe I should hold some clinics or teach people how to preach. You know, just start, you know, maybe start a little website. You know, people can send me questions about preaching, you know, something like that, right? Like, what's happening there? I'm stealing the glory of God in my heart. I'm saying, you know, here's the spotlight that should be shining on our great God, and I'm kind of like, you know, sort of like leaning into the spotlight, you know, forgetting that any gift I have, any gift you have, is a gift. I didn't make myself the way I am. You didn't make the way yourself you are. Anything that you have that's a blessing is a gift. And any good result that comes out of it is because God has been working through that gift. Right? I mean, I, I'm not able to bring anyone to Christ, but yet we, we take credit for that. But it's God who works in people's hearts. You know, ultimately what matters isn't whether it was a well-crafted sermon artistically or not, or whether or not you liked it or thought it was funny or boring. The only thing that matters is that we come in contact with the living God through His Word and Spirit. To me, that's a successful sermon. If you and I have encountered God, I mean, that's really what I see preaching as. Preaching is, a, is an act of mediation. Through the Word of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the life of a, a wretch that God has chosen to be a preacher, and God takes that and He interacts with His people. And so if you go away or I go away from a message and we haven't interacted with the living God, then really it is kind of miss, we missed the point somewhere along the way. Something didn't happen that was supposed to happen. Because it's ultimately about us coming in contact with the glory of God and seeing God and loving Him more and being convicted of our sin and drawing close to Him and being encouraged by God and all the things that happen when a person comes face to face with their Maker. And that's what should be taking place. But when I take credit for it, I rob God of His glory. I act as if I were somehow responsible for the work of God. And I'll tell you what, you don't mess with God's glory. He is a jealous God, He says in Exodus. It says in Deuteronomy, He's a consuming fire. He's a holy God. Let us humble ourselves before this God. Pride is really an attack upon God Himself. I like the way that uh, the Puritan Thomas Manton put it. He said, this is how he defined pride. He said, pride is a lifting up of the heart above God and against God and without God. It's a good definition. Pride is a lifting up of the heart above God and against God and without God. Uh, I read a little quote by Karl Marx. Uh, Marx said this, of course he you know, was atheistic in his philosophy, but Marx said, religion is only the illusory sun around which man revolves until he begins to revolve around himself. And I would disagree with Marx on two points at least there. One is that I, I think he thinks revolving around yourself is good. <laughs> I disagree with that, I think it's bad. But the other thing is, I think he's wrong in that he thinks the evolution goes from the self revolving around a religion to the self revolving around self. I think that's the starting point. We all start revolving around ourselves. You don't go there. The problem is that's where we are by nature and by nurture and by everything. 
We start revolving around ourselves, which is the problem uh, with pride. Um, and so ultimately, if you want to even put it in stronger terms, I think pride is ultimately satanic in nature. Because what was Satan's great crime? That he would aspire to God. What was the lie that Satan told our first parents? No, no, no. If you eat this fruit, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. So ultimately, when, I, when I'm prideful, I'm adopting the mindset and philosophy of the prince of darkness, which is to set myself up against God himself. Oh, but our God is a consuming fire. He's a holy God, a righteous God. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 2. Look at this text on God's response to pride. It's on page uh, 667 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. Page 667 if you're using a Pew Bible. Just a few pages over. Isaiah 2.12 says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled, for all the cedars of Lebanon, again the vertical imagery, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, and every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel. Think about those big masted ships. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And so, brothers and sisters, let us humble ourselves before this awesome God. Let us be low and and abase ourselves and recognize that we're nothing before this God. And that's what humility is. If we could kind of focus on humility now. What's humility? Again, humility is fundamentally vertical in nature. Humility has to do with my relationship to God. It's not horizontal. I mean, it has horizontal effects in how I relate to others, but it's primarily about me and God. Just as pride is about me and God. So humility is the same thing. And humility just means that I see myself accurately in relationship to who God is. That's all humility is. Like, don't confuse humility with kind of whiny, smarmy self-pity. I think sometimes we think that's a humble person. The person is like, I'm a loser, and you know, nothing ever goes right for me, and I never get a break, and you know, everyone's always against me, and I don't have any friends, and you know, it's kind of whiny, drippy, droopy. I mean, that's not humility. In fact, I think that can actually be a form of self-absorption, just in kind of a victimized sort of shell. It's not humility. Humility isn't just focusing on how sorry and, and how miserable my life is. Humility is seeing God and letting my vision be so enraptured with who God is that I just kind of recede into my proper scale compared to God. It's like when the sun rises in the morning, you don't see the stars anymore. And when God's glory rises in my hearts and I see the the luminosity of His his majesty, all of my little stars that I thought were so great, they just kind of disappear. Uh, they, They fade away. Um, Look at another text in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Very famous passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. 
one of the most elevated uh, pieces of literature in the Bible and probably all of literature. It's an amazing chapter. It describes the greatness of God. It's all about God's majesty as the Lord and as the Savior. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. It says, Who has measured the water in the hollow of His hands? Or with the breadth of His hands marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? You know, we think we're so great and so powerful, but when I take my power and my fame and my wealth and everything I have and I compare it against God who just holds the whole earth like a little speck of dust in His hand, I just go, oh, what an awesome God. Or think about His mind, verse 13. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed Him as His counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten Him and who taught Him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? You know, God has no degrees. He's never went anywhere to college. No one ever taught him. He hasn't read books. doesn't need to. He knows all things. You know, in, in my paltry education, in my small little thoughts, and all my rationalism, it's so, it's so nothing compared to the greatness of a mind that thought up reality. I mean, everything that I experience as reality came from the imagination of God. I mean, what a mind! Or look at uh, our pride and in, in, in our strength. Look at nationalism, verse 15. Surely the nations, I love that one, are like a drop in a bucket. That's, that's the best line. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon's not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless, less than nothing. And so the final question, verse 18, to whom then will you compare God? God is so awesome. So we need to humble ourselves before him. Humility is recognizing this awesome God that we have. Letting our imagination try to scale the foothills of the mountain of God, which we can't even begin. And just letting ourselves be amazed at who this God is. But people, it has to even go further. It's not just being in awe of God's greatness and power and strength and saying, ooh, look how big God is. Ultimately, I think real humility manifests itself when we compare ourselves to God morally. And that is the nub of the issue. When I stand and I compare my righteousness, such as it is, to God's righteousness. When I compare my good deeds to His, Him who is ontologically good, who is goodness, God is light, the Bible says. And when I compare myself morally to God, I think that's where humility gets hard. Because I can say, yeah, God's big and God's powerful. But I think the last stronghold of pride, the last citadel of place where pride retreats when it's under assault is in self-righteousness. Uh, self-righteousness is the Masada, where, where, where pride hides under the final advance of God's power. And so, uh, uh, it, it's in that sense that I'm, I'm really an okay person. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not that bad, actually. And this is the, the one thing that we don't want to yield. We're more willing to, to give up our sins than we are our righteousness. Um, look, look at a great text, and this is my last text I'll take you to. Luke chapter 18. And we'll just kind of wrap it up here in Luke chapter 18. We're back to Luke. 
page uh, 1038, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. A little parable, you've probably heard it before. It's so good. I love this parable. So clear. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, page 1038. It says in verse 9, Jesus is, is preaching here. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's a religious expert, one who was a a specialist in morality, and the other a tax collector, a person who had no moral standing in anyone's eyes. The Pharisee stood up. Notice he's going up. And he prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like uh, this tax collector here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. God, I thank you that I go to three Bible studies a week. God, I want to thank you that I'm, uh, you know, chairman of this committee or that committee. I want to thank you, God, that, uh, you know, I don't do all those bad things that other people do. It's just that, that religious kind of self-righteousness. God, I thank you that, that I drive a hybrid and that all my clothes are made from recycled products. And God, I want to thank you that, uh, that I do have a master's degree, which, you know, makes me virtuous by, by nature of it, because I'm smarter. You know, it's just, we take kind of a moral, uh, uppityness. There's this moral superbia that comes. And no matter what it is, whether it's religious or any other form, that's the last thing we ever want to surrender to God, is our sense of self-righteousness. That is the last refuge of pride. But contrast that with the tax collector, verse 13. The tax collector stood at a distance, so he does not go up. He stays down. He would not even look up to heaven, so even his gaze is cast downward. But instead he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, the lowly man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty decent, you know, uh, well-educated suburbanite like me. (laughs) No. That saved a wretch like me. Until I come to the place in my life of saying, God, I am actually morally bankrupt. I'm in total need of a bailout here, God, morally speaking. Until I come to the place of saying, I need a Savior because I can't save myself, I cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that the entry of the kingdom of God must come when we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior and we come to that lowest point. But when we do, when we come to humble ourselves before God, when we recognize that we need a Savior, that's when He lifts us up, as it says in verse 14. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The first thing that happens is that we're forgiven. It says that that man went home justified in verse 14. In other words, the guy who was the acknowledged sinner, low life, who humbled himself and begged for God's mercy, actually went home justified. He could stand up righteous before God. That's an amazing thing that we're saved by grace. We're saved by what God does for us, not what we do for ourselves. Justification is a gift. God views us now as if we had not been sinners, even though we are. It's amazing. But not only that, then God begins to to change our lives. Uh, And and once you humble yourself before God, you can humble yourself before anybody, I think. I think if you're truly humble before God, it's easy to be humble before others. 
Because, you know, God knows it all anyway. I've just kind of like laid it all out there. If I've gone to the lowest point of even recognizing my moral depravity. And so I can, I can humble myself before you. The truly humble person, it's, it's really no big deal. I can, I can chair a committee or I can, you know, clean the church toilets. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm just the Lord's servant. I, that's, I'm saved by grace. I do whatever God wants me to do. Uh, I don't need any status or recognition because I don't know I don't have any. It's all about him and his glory. That's where the humble person is thinking. They're focused on God's glory. And they're like, I'm going to change diapers to the glory of God or I'm going to preach a sermon to the glory of God or I'm going to shovel the walkways to the glory of God. Um, it's a different kind of attitude. And also, you know, I think we can humble ourselves before each other by admitting that we're not perfect Christians with perfect lives. I think that's a thing we sort of bring into church sometimes, like, oh, I'm in church. So, okay, you know, I'm good. You know, I, I could admit that I'm not super pastor. Oh, that felt good to say that. I'm not super pastor. <laughs> no, no ass. It's great. <laughs> I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know, you don't have to be super dad, super mom, super whatever. We're just sinners saved by grace. And I think that enables us to kind of be real and transparent in the church. It's unfortunate. I think the church should be the place where we should be able to be most transparent. But sometimes it's a, a place that puts up barriers to transparency because we think, well, I'm a Christian, so I have to sort of be problem-free. And, you know, and I've been a Christian for 20 years, and I'm having this issue and struggling with this issue of faith. I can't be doing that because I've been a Christian for 20 years. Just be real. You know, find someone you trust and say, will you pray for me? Cause I, you're not going to believe this. I'm going through this. Chances are they're going to believe it because they've gone through that too. Um, and ultimately, our, our humility is modeled in Christ himself, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And having been found in appearance as a man, it says in Philippians, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus went from the highest possible place, equality with God, to the lowest possible place, dying on a cross as a condemned criminal. And he did it for us. So how can we not also humble ourselves before God when our, when our salvation was purchased at such a great price of humility. Brothers and sisters, let us humble ourselves before our glorious God. Let us experience the freedom and liberation and joy of taking our place as creation, as those saved by grace, and see what it's like to be then lifted up by the hand of God who takes us from where we are in our sins and makes us His children. It's such a wonderful thing. Have you received the forgiveness of God by humbling yourself before Him? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, You are the name that is above every name. You are the King. You are the Exalted One. And to think that You came to a manger, that You were born to peasants in an insignificant part of the world, to think, Lord Jesus, that you went all the way to the cross for us who were your enemies. And to think that you saved us, you rescued us, and you made us your children. Lord, we love you. And God, we just pray that you would humble our hearts before you, that, we would, that you would help us as a church to see your majesty and your magnificence. And that we would be humbled and we would see the great salvation we receive. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's struggling with whether or not 
Uh, these things are true. They're struggling with faith. God, I just pray that You would bring them back to the basics. That they would see that Jesus is the Lord and they would humble themselves before Him who was humbled on the cross. And God, I pray for any Christians here, who, just for any Christians who feel stuck in their faith, who feel like their faith is kind of lukewarm, it's kind of flatlined, and it hasn't been growing. God, I just pray, bring them back to the basics this morning. Help them to start by humbling themselves before You and just saying, God, I need You. I, I, I can't live this Christian life. I can't generate Christianity from within myself. I need you moment by moment. And God, just bring us back to that place of renewal and humility at the foot of the cross. And God, I pray that once you bring us there, we pray you put your hand on us and keep us there. And that, Lord, we might stay humbled before you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. John, would you come and lead us?